settle down, as they say. And if you could also turn off your mobile phones or please put them on silent, which I'm just about to do. So if you could all do that well. Uh, welcome. My name is Professor Mick Cox or Michael Cox. I'm Director of LSE Ideas. Uh, I'm Professor Emeritus of International Relations here. Uh, and welcome to this event, which I put together with two of my close and dearest friends. Um, talking and thinking and reflecting on the liberal order. Where is it? Has it gone? Uh, is it worth preserving? And what is being preserved in the age of whatever we want to call our age? Trump, uncertainty, lies, Brexit. I'll leave that up to you to fill in the gaps. Uh, I won't say too much uh, introducing our two colleagues, distinguished colleagues here today, only to say this is organized through the LSE Festival, uh, one of these great uh, LSE institutions, one of many, including this room, by the way, which is a very famous room, named after George Bernard Shaw's wife. I'm sorry to say it like that, but there she is, the picture of her at the back. Uh, not George Bernard Shaw, but, but his, his wonderful, extraordinary wife. She founded this in 1939-40 as a place where LSE social scientists could come and read poetry. Whether they ever did come and read poetry, of course, is another question. Uh, but anyway, it's one of the great rooms of the LSE, historical in many ways, and you'll see around all these great figures or all former directors. Some great, some not so great. But I'll leave that up to you to decide. Anyway, today we're going to debate the liberal order. Where is it? I've got two speakers. I'll introduce briefly John Eikenberry, a very old friend of mine, good friend, currently uh, up at Oxford. Uh, working away on a new book on the liberal international order. John has written uh, uh, prolifically on, on this particular question, and John's going to set the debate going about whether this international order we call liberal is still alive and well. Another good friend, Mary Calder, at the school, of course, for many years, uh, whose father also, by the way, taught at the school in the 1930s, Nicholas Calder, one of the great economists of this country, uh, will not reply, but actually will reflect, make her own reflections on this. Both speakers will take 20 minutes each, which will then take us to about, and that will give us then 20 minutes for questions and answers. But before I introduce you, John, and then you, Mary, I wonder if we could put our hands together to welcome our two speakers. Please. Thank you, Mick. It's great to be in this, this beautiful room. I can't say that I'm going to recite poetry, <laughs> uh, nor do I think necessarily the ideas, the liberal ideas that I want to talk about are poetic, but they, I think that uh, this is a great room to, to talk about these issues, and so I thank you, Mick, uh, for inviting me. Um, well, these are not great times for uh, the world uh, liberal order. Liberalism, liberal internationalism are in retreat. Uh, we're at a, a moment where uh, the inflection point in history seems to have moved in a, in a new direction. Only a few years ago, we were celebrating what we thought was a, a profound shift in world history, the post-1989 moment, the, the liberal moment, when it looked like there was a consensus uh, worldwide, at least for a while, that uh, democracy, liberalism, progressive vision of industrial society and world system uh, movement was all uh, of one sort moving in a, in a direction. Uh, we could uh, talk about uh, the, the future as a movement towards liberal democracy and the, the uh, kind of grand narrative of liberalism was inflected with ideas about triumph, about uh, progressivism, the end of history, uh, uh, universal march of democracy. 
but of course, now all of that looks a, a little bit quaint, and we've moved uh, well beyond that. Uh, uh, 2016 stands out as a year in which we will probably be sorting out these trends for a long, long time. Brexit and Trump, two uh, movements that, if they had happened individually, might not have been of that kind of world historical significance, but together they seem to suggest something. And indeed, the two countries, uh, Britain and the United States, Anglo-America, the two countries really for 200 years have been uh, putting their stamp on the world order. No other countries really, arguably, have done so as much in the modern era. Um, uh, but here we have the, the leaders of these two countries in some sense saying, uh, we want off, uh, we've had enough. Um, Trump himself looks even more re revisionist, shall we say, as a kind of world historical figure. Uh, both cause and consequence. Trump is not the cause uh, entirely. He is exacerbating, amplifying uh, today's disorder, but it's deeper than that for sure. He is a kind of avatar of a kind of global revolt against uh, modernity. The rock on which the liberal order was built over 200 years uh, seems to be crumbling. It's Indeed, it's hard to find... Uh, um, uh, people who are willing to kind of talk about the liberal vision and give it a kind of uh, uh, grand uh, defense. Gideon Rose, the editor of Foreign Affairs, said everybody that he talks to wants to write the obituary of, of the liberal order. Um, and again, Trump seems to be very much in that, uh, that mode. Uh, the United States uh, uh, in this moment uh, not simply failing to uh, build on and, and, and support and defend the, the liberal order, but actively trying to tear it down. It's hard to think in history of, of a state that uh, is actively engaged in uh, destroying or even vandalizing its own creation. But here we have, here we have Trump. It's like uh, uh, the sack of Rome, but it's not the Gauls or the Vandals or the <laughs> Goths, it's, it's the Romans, or it's the emperor himself. So there is this sense of being at a, at a really remarkable, odd moment. Clearly a time for reflection. Uh, humility, I think, is, uh, is something that we all have to accept if we uh, thought we knew the way the world was, was moving uh, some, some years ago. And some of us have articles that we wish we could bury in obscurity. <laughs> the, Mine, mine would be the myth of the autocratic revival. Uh, I uh, uh, was, uh, uh, don't bother reading it. But it is a time for uh, thinking about uh, the big issues, the classics, rereading E.H. Carr, Morgenthau, the Keynes-Hayek debate, Polanyi. Uh, Isaiah Berlin is making a comeback. He's, of course, a fixture at All Souls where I am this year, but the sense of, of returning to an earlier period when, when uh, the liberal project was more in a period of struggle. So it is a time to go back and think. I think the first move is to um, take the long view that the benchmark of thinking about liberal order is not best measured from 1989 or even 1945, that th this has been a longer uh, unfolding, 200 years of crises, breakthroughs, failures, golden eras. Uh, think about 1945, the rebuilding of liberal order after what was the, arguably the most remarkable destruction, uh, world destruction of, of modern society. Uh, read Ira Katznelson's Desolation and en Enlightenment, uh, a story about how liberals in 1945 tried to pick up the pieces after they saw the world 
overwhelmed by fascism, totalitarianism, total war, the Holocaust, the atomic bomb, oh yes, the, uh, the Great Depression. So you have this, this larger drama of point and counterpoint, movement and counter-movement. Uh, the history of liberal internationalism is more one written, uh, really a story of struggle than it is a story of, of triumph. The 1930s, economic depression leading to reinventions, the, the, uh, the New Deal. The 1950s, making sense of how do you square liberal democracy with uh, the atomic age and the balance of terror. The 1970s, uh, the oil shock, stagnation, a crisis of capitalism, Tr terrorist movements in Germany, Japan, Italy, the United States, leading scholars in the 1970s, we forget, but talked about the crisis of governability. And this so-called golden era of the Western liberal order was also one where uh, you had uh, countries such as Portugal and Spain who were uh, uh, doggedly authoritarian, and in France and Italy, at least 20% of the electorate was communist. So the golden era may not have been so golden. Uh, it's important also to look at the, the sources of the crisis. And here I would argue that the, the, how did we get here? It's more than Trump. It's a, a kind of almost a crisis of success. The, the liberal order was not a global order. It was an order built inside of the Cold War bipolar system. Uh, it was an inside order that when the Cold War ended, it became the outside order. And inside that order, it had bargains, institutions, it had uh, agreements, uh, compromises across classes, you had the social welfare state. You had a sense that being inside of the liberal order, uh, inside of the bipolar system, was to be in something that generated security, uh, opportunity, created institutions so governments could make uh, industrial society more secure, safer, more stable. But that inside order then, after the Cold War ended, became the outside order. And here you see uh, a, a victory, it seems, uh, the moment of triumph, but it's actually kind of the seeds of, 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 of uh, crisis are planted in that period. You have what I would argue a kind of Polanyi crisis of, of uh, the capitalist system overrunning its foundations. The advanced industrial democracies that had run this order, the G7, are now uh, a minority within a larger international system, shifting the narratives, uh, er eroding the governance foundations, and also er eroding what was a kind of hallmark of that liberal order for 60 years, which was a sense of security community, that it was one community, we were in it together, uh, it was providing for uh, the health and welfare of these societies, but it lost that and became, uh, in a kind of neoliberal turn, a, a liberal order became a framework for thinking about and, tr and supporting capitalist uh, transactions. So the backlash uh, ensued from there. The, the breakdown marked by the uh, 2008 financial crisis, the Iraq war, the kind of foundations of establishment support for liberal order fell apart. How far will it go? Well, this is a question we don't know. How far can Trump uh, 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 tear apart this, this system? If he's a wrecking ball, how much will he wreck? Um, this is a question everybody's asking. Do, do we wait out the Trump era? Uh, do we think it's a blip, or is it the new America? Is this the new, new reality that we have to deal with? Um, I think it's, it's hard to say, but I think it's going to be 
difficult to go back. I guess that would be my thesis, that for 70 years, the U.S. has played this uh, central role, kind of first citizen, upholding a far-flung international order. Um, other countries around the world accommodated themselves to this system, a kind of liberal hegemonic system, taking advantage of it for some, working around it for others, but everybody, in some sense, predicating them, their strategies as states on its reality and continued existence. And here we now, today, really are at a point where states can't make that assumption anymore. They have to rethink. They have to assume that things won't go back. And so states are hedging, they're building new coalitions, they're investing in new leaders, they're moving on in various ways. And this, of course, is being uh, pushed forward by other great uh, movements in the international system, power transitions, the rise of China, the unraveling of these Western uh, agreements or foundations, class compromises, political bargains, advancement opportunities, and the sheer uh, complexity and intractability of modern international interdependence. Those are all in the background creating difficulties of establishing and reestablishing this liberal order. So I'll just end by asking the question, how resilient might it be? How, what, what is still working in its favor? What's the balance sheet? If, if we are at a point where, where uh, parts of it are crumbling, what might survive? Uh, it helps that the autocratic movements, the backlash movements, are not uh, uh, aggregating into a single kind of coherent ideology and movement. There are, there's China, there's Russia, there's Eastern Europe, there's uh, uh, populist nationalist leader, leaders. It's not clear it's a single world movement uh, with an international kind of dimension. It helps that it doesn't necessarily have a... Uh, a record of success, and that's where I would suggest the first source of resilience might be simply that there may be, uh, and we may be watching this now, a kind of backlash to the backlash. That is to say that looking at Trump, looking at Brexit, states are saying, we don't really want to go there anymore. Uh, it's like uh, taking a ride in an amusement park. You go down a slide, it's exhilarating, and then your parents ask you, do you want to do it again, Johnny? And you say, no, it was great, but let's not do it again. There's a sense of this is something uh, that maybe we don't want to do again. Um, and indeed, in the United States, there's been a return of support for alliances, for trade. The statistics and the public opinion polls suggest that there is a, a latent constituency for the United Nations, for uh, trade agreements and so forth. So th there is a, a, a latent majority coalition in the United States, and I would argue more broadly, uh, for some kind of backlash against the backlash. Uh, secondly, uh, liberal order is not just an American, um, American uh, creation or artifact. Uh, Germany and Japan are doing things today, I think, that are part of new leaders that are taking, taking, uh, uh, taking uh, steps to try to defend their interests. Germany, Merkel is very eloquent uh, in this. Uh, Germany had two lessons from World War II, never again and never alone. Uh, that the institutions of this Atlantic and European system are integral to Germany's recipe for modernity, for success, and the 
end of the, the fall of the Berlin Wall was a ratification of that view. It was the prism through which Germany has looked at the modern world in the last uh, two and a half decades. And that remains. And there are very few options for Germany, for Japan, for most of the countries in the advanced industrial world uh, to, to do anything other than to reweave together the institutions that have provided the foundation for their success. And then finally, uh, the uh, problems of interdependence. Uh, here, uh, you'd have to say that those problems have not gone away. Climate change, financial crises, weapons of mass destruction, proliferation. The world is not becoming less interdependent. Economic and security interdependence are growing. Liberal internationalists will say at the end of the day, if that is true, states will be better off in coordinating their policies and working through multilateral institutions. Uh, the costs of lost autonomy associated with making agreements is less than the, than the cost that would be associated with not coordinating through institutions. So there's a kind of rationality uh, that may not totally match up with the politics of the day, but will, uh, will I, I would argue, continue to weigh heavily on what states do in the post-Trump era. Uh, tackling the great problems of of the 21st century will require more rather than less liberal internationalism. Thank you very Thank much, you. John, and straight over to Mary. Thanks, John. Well, thanks very much, and I think I agree with it, nearly everything John has said, but I'm just going to try and put it in a slightly different way. So I think we're in one of these great historical moments of transition, um, and to quote Gramsci, which, who's being quoted all the time, the old is dying and the new cannot be born. Um, and in that interregnum, we see all sorts of morbid symptoms. So what is it that's dying? I think it's the end. I mean, in one sense, one could say it's the end of the American-dominated mo model of development. Uh, mass production, intensive use of oil... Uh, an interventionist state and a world order that was based, as John described, on the bipolar contest of the Cold War. Um, but I actually, and, and in the past when we've had those transitions, at least since the end of the 18th century, we've always had major wars. Mm. And in those major wars, both international arrangements and states have been fundamentally restructured, providing a new framework for the next phase of development. Mm. Um, but what I want to say is that I think this transition is something more than the transitions we've had since the end of the 18th century. Mm. <laughs> um, I think it's the end of a whole period which we might want to call modernity. Um, which was characterized by the dominance of the state system, characterized by wars between states, which was actually, as I've tried to explain, part of how the system functioned, um, which involved reliance on fossil fuels, and which also involved print technology as the main form of communication. <laughs> And I think we're moving beyond this system. That doesn't mean I think we're moving backwards to pre-modernity, but it might be what Giddens or mm. Beck called late modernity or reflexive modernity. So 
you know, where is this transition heading towards? Is it actually a transition? Mm. And I think the first thing to say is that I don't... Well, there could be, of course, another major war, but that would honestly be the end of everything. I think much more likely is what I, in my language, call a new war. Um, And, you know, I think if we think about the Trump... Putin, Brexit phenomenon. Actually, what are they characterized by? It's a sort of combination of ethnic nationalism, by which I mean sort of nationalist ideologies, but directed not so much against other states as against groups and individuals, migrants, terrorists, and so on. And crony capitalism, which has been, I think, the consequence of this turn to neoliberalism that uh, John was talking about, the massive growth of financial globalization and the way in which this has poured money into states and competition to gain access to states suddenly becomes about gaining access to contracts and money instead of about political competition. It's what my colleague Alex DeWall calls the political marketplace, the commodification of the monetization of power. Um, And I think this sort of combination, which is deeply um, associated with deregulation and neoliberalism, is what I, as somebody who studies conflicts in other parts of the world, is what has produced the wars we've seen in places like Bosnia, Congo, Syria, Libya. And these are wars which actually are an extreme expression of what I'm describing, in which armed groups gain actually from violence, they gain economically through loot and pillage and the like, or through access or the fragmentation of the state so they can gain access to resources, and through it fostering their extremist politics, which becomes a reality as a result of violence. You start to hate the other guys if they're going to kill you for what you are. And these kinds of wars, precisely because they gain from violence rather than winning or losing, are very persistent. They're terribly difficult to end. You know, we've seen Afghanistan going on since 1979. Congo's gone on forever. Um, Syria now is into its ninth year. Bosnia, the international community, it was that brief period of the 1990s that John talked about. Bosnia somehow managed to create what I call a hybrid peace. It entrenched the warlords who were just like Trump and (laughs) Jacob Rees-Mogg into their positions. And Bosnia is a totally dysfunctional society that only survives by dint of having masses of troops there and masses of money. And so... You know, we're already seeing the rise of hate crime. You know, if Brexit goes through, I think we will see a renewal of war in Northern Ireland and the breakup of Britain. So a very real prognosis could be a new war, which I suppose would be endless transition. Mm. That's, uh, it might not be quite on the scale of Syria, but I think this is a real prognosis and that's why we should be so worried about what's happening at the moment. So 
how do we avoid this? And my feeling is precisely because of interdependence, because of the huge importance of information technology, which is transforming every aspect of our lives. Because of climate change, we can't go back to another phase of the state system. We actually do need a system of global governance which is more than just having international institutions guaranteeing the liberal world order. And, you know, we need to have institutions that can restrain finance and financial markets and what somebody was saying to me was the daily plebiscite of the bond market. Mm. We need to tackle climate change. I think it's just fantastic the way these children have been coming out to <laughs> put us to shame. Um, we need to intervene effectively to try to end these new wars and all the other things that John was talking about. Uh, we need actually to be able to tax multinational companies so that we can have a redistribution of funds because the what neoliberalism has led to is extreme inequalities as well, which has also supported the rise of this new phenomenon, which at the moment I'm calling Putin-Trump-Brexit, but we could think of, we need to develop a name. Some people call it authoritarian populism. I don't know. We have to have a name. Um, my view is that uh, the European Union is, um, represents a possible form, new form of global governance. I don't think the European Union is a new superstate in the making, nor is it a classic intergovernmental organisation. It's something new that we've created by chance, actually, over the last few years. And I think it, it doesn't replace nation states, but what it does is to restrain their worst aspects, war and repression. Um, and it still leaves a large num amount of decision making. And it's in the hands of nation states, but it's large enough to be able to restrain global bads like financial markets or climate change and to promote global goods. So I feel the development of the European Union is hugely important, uh, which is why this fight we're in in this country over Brexit is so mm. completely critical, because I actually think the survival and the transformation, not the EU as it is, but as it ought to be, uh, is the key to reconstructing a liberal world order. Um, and so what's happening in this country over the next two weeks is going to enormously shape the future of the liberal world order. Do I think it's possible? Well, I tell you what gives me grounds for optimism. I do think in both the United States and here in Europe, what we've seen is that a much larger part of the population is educated, involved in debate and deliberation, stands up for values. Now, what I also know is that that part of the population is, is most easily pushed around by physical violence. Mm. And that's what makes it so incredibly dangerous, that we need at the moment to sustain our institutions that restrain violence. And one thing I wanted to say in terms of the liberal world order is that one of the things that I have found so shocking about the last few years is that if you look at the worsening situation in Syria where 
the international, liberal international world order was nowhere to be seen. Mm. Every norm that uh, people of my generation took for granted has been undermined. The deliberate bombing of schools and hospitals. Targeted assassinations, which is what's involved in the drone campaign. Um, if you look at what's happened in the ISIS area, where we've been supposed to be defeating terrorism, this scale of destruction, basically they killed so many people and towns have been reduced to rubble. And what you find when you talk to people there is that they prefer ISIS because it was very hard, but at least they weren't killed. And what is worse is that in the areas liberated from ISIS, uh, terrorists, the, the ISIS is reappearing. I mean, so it's really horrendous, this situation. So targeted assassination, beheadings, the reintroduction of slavery. I mean, the list, the use of chemical weapons, which we thought we had eliminated with the Chemical Weapons Convention. So the degree to which sort of international norms that were upheld by the liberal world order are sort of dissipating before our eyes is really alarming. And this is what we have to restore. Um, and so I suppose my argument is that the whole question is open. It depends mm. on politics. It depends on people like us being ready to really push to preserve what we had. Um, and it's, a very, it's going to be a very difficult fight. And, but I'm happy because of the children that protested that the next generation seems to be up for it. <laughs> okay, thanks very much, Mary. That's great. Um, could I just maybe... I'll start it. We've got plenty of time, by the way. We're, we're just everybody's been very disciplined, so we've got a good half hour. Maybe, John, can I just tease out one of the yeah. points you made a bit more, which I think was a very interesting one amongst many others. Look, essentially, the victory of liberalism in 1989, 1990, 1991 actually has un helped undermine the liberal order. I mean, I'd like you to tease that argument out a bit more because I think that's a really interesting argument. And it seems to me that it comes in three, three parts, and you may find others. One, of course, without this being criticism of China, dare I ever criticize China, but the truth of the matter is that nobody kind of realized what a, what a kind of an economic shock China would be uh, entering into the world market through globalization. I think we kind of half knew it in the 90s, joined the WTO, but there was a China shock. And I think, in a way, that's the product of a victory of liberalism. But the, but the knock-on effects of that, I'm not, I'm, again, I'm not blaming China for all the problems facing the United States, but I think that was one. The second thing is, of course, what, if you read through the, the, the collected thoughts and wisdoms of Alan Greenspan, uh, the man who ran the Federal Reserve for 20 years, almost the man who, if he winked an eyebrow, countries collapsed, um, he, if you read his work, it's quite clear that the market has triumphed and there's no alternative to the market and the market can't fail. Well, it seems to me that once you get into that, what I call a, a market triumphalism, the chances of the market failing are very, very high indeed. And I wonder again, the hubris, to, to use a phrase, was, was actually a critical factor in bringing about 2008. It, we, it happened because we thought it couldn't. And we thought it couldn't because of this extraordinary victory of market. And then picking up on a point that Mary has made on globalization, I remember reading good old Danny Roderick back well, 20 years ago. And Danny Roderick then was already warning that the downsides of globalization were being ignored uh, by those who were celebrating globalization, including most of the people who write for the Financial Times and many, many others indeed. 
And I think, again, what we've seen over the last, and this comes back to the origins of Trump and to some degree Brexit, it's the downsides, it's the losers of globalization, it's the deindustrialization, it's the lost, it's the lost communities, it's the lost manufacturing jobs, it's the displacement, it's all of those issues. And, I, and I, I'd, I'd be interested to hear you tease that one out, John. Almost the paradox, almost the tragedy of liberalism. It, it wins, but it, in a sense, lays the foundation for all sorts of other yeah, things. I think, I think that's the, the argument I yeah. would like to make. I mean, we forget how much the establishment in the West, certainly in the United States, bipartisan uh, across the boards, thought yeah. that uh, the post-Cold War world would be one where there was a consolidation of markets and democracy, that there would be integration across regions, that, that states would make some slowly, some rapidly uh, economic and political uh, transitions. Mm. It's an extraordinary moment, mm. and in the real world, there are these things going on. Yeah. And you, you have countries that uh, in 1980, you take the G20 today, the G20 countries today, in 1980, only the seven who yeah. are the G7, the G7 were democratic. Today, arguably, they uh, all of them are except uh, China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey is is a in between state. So there has been and there was a, a these transitions. It wasn't all uh, yeah. a, a, an illusion, but it did, I think, put in 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 uh, in train these knock-on effects, as you say, that, that have eroded, undermined, attenuated, and unbalanced uh, yeah. the liberal order. Mm. Uh, there's also this, there, from uh, Bush Sr., uh, 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 Clinton for sure, but ju uh, Junior Bush as well, you had this sense that uh, the global order would be a one-world integrated system, and that would be both good for us and good for everybody else. China would join the, the WTO. We would be, uh, as, as Clinton said in, in announcing the uh, decision to admit uh, China into the WTO, we're not just exporting goods, but we're exporting democracy. And that was not just a, a narrow view by some. That was a widespread view. And I think we forget how we all kind of had that position that there was something that was going to solve our problems, the, we'll call it the liberal bet on, on the future. Um, and the, I think the liberal project, if that's what you want to call uh, the project for building and creating an open, rule-based, progressively oriented world system, that's what I would defend. That's the flag where I want to plant my flag. We have to, in defending that system, um, uh, try to figure out what, what went wrong and what project remains if the broad project of liberal modernity, of spreading that there's all of, all of these different features of our polities that we value so much and that have generated so much success are capable of being, uh, are no longer seen as capable of being a global project. And mm -hmm. I think that part of the rethinking is a more modest rethinking. It's mm -hmm. this, read Isaiah Berlin. It's, it's uh, John Gray described his liberalism, really a Cold War era liberalism, as using the, the Greek word egon for struggle or conflict, agonistic liberalism, a sense of you're not necessarily riding a wave where the world is all, all moving in one direction and the wind of history is at your back, you're, you're struggling to, to preserve freedom, to, to, uh, to, to preserve your institutions uh, in, a, in a difficult world. And I think that's the, 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 the zeitgeist that will have to be, be there. But I think it entails, um, 
uh, recognizing that markets are not a solution to everything. Uh, Roderick is right that there are trade-offs between equity and social stability. His argument is not that the early liberalization of trade in the post-war system was bad. Mm. It generated efficiency gains, growth, and rising incomes for the middle class and working class. But after a while, certainly with capital controls coming off and with deep integration, deep globalization, the distributional effects are greater than the efficiency effects. So the efficiency effects would be, well, there will be losers to this deep integration, but there will be so much more wealth that can be redistributed that everybody is better off at some kind of Pareto level. That's not true. It just creates more inequality, more distributional distortions than it does generate more efficiency gains. And so that basic reality, I think, is, is has to inform um, a, 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 not throwing everything out, and, and, uh, but, but kind of circling the wagons, uh, uh, not re-nationalizing the world, but recognizing that the liberal order is built on nation states. And this is, if I could just, sure. just partly uh, respond to, to Mary, I don't think, I don't know whether we're in late modernity. We may be a thousand years from now, people will say, they thought they were in late modernity. They were in early modernity. They just didn't know it. Uh, so there, we don't know where we are. I, if modernity is technology, science, knowledge, spreading uh, uh, shifts and, and, and triggering shifts in, in social and economic institutions. At some level, I, I'm not willing to say that, that because of Trump and the financial crisis in Syria that modernity is over. I think... Uh, a, a more world-weary view about what it is. Not that it's all a, one large, long march to, to a better world, but, but that there is still, to use Giddens, uh, there he is up there, uh, Giddens, that there still is a global narrative. That's, that's what he means by modernity, is, is that we can look at the world and see its pieces and societies and peoples and understand it as a kind of ongoing unfolding drama that's not necessarily linear, linear in its direction and, and liberal in its direction, but that there is a sense that we can understand it as a system of movement. And I, I think we're still there. It's just going to have to be reimagined. And I would just, one final thing about the, 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 the 1990s, the, the globalization of, of economic and political liberalism, I think, um, I think it, it, uh, it was partly generated because there weren't other alternatives available and everything else had dropped out. Mm, mm. Um, the, 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 with the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was the collapse of the, so, the, the Soviet communist project and obviously fascist project. The, the, it, it's partly found itself in this position of being the only game in town because the other games failed. And so uh, one possibility is that all games are now failing. The liberal modernity <laughs> game is failing. So we're living in a world where nothing works. Uh, or, and I would prefer this view, that there is still something there associated with liberal democracies. We, uh, I, we, you have to ask yourself when you wake up in the morning, do you want to live in a world where liberal democracies are the kind of center of gravity of the modern system? If your answer is yes, then I think you have to... S- Say, how do we 
how do we uh, look in the past and see the the the, the ups and downs, the, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the, 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 the shifts, the crises and, re- and reinventions of the past and, and see that if they can do it, we can do it too. Thank you, John. Merrick, I'm going to ask a very quick question. You're, you're, you're very optimistic about, well, not optimistic, but you said the end of the whole period of modernity and what you think, you think it's a long-term decline of the state system and the possibility of any wars between states. Let me just put my realist hat on and look like, sound like John Mearsheimer just for a moment. I mean, you could almost say now states are back with a bit of a vengeance, you know, the, re- the, re- you know, the rehabilitation of states, nationalism, you know, all the sorts of things we're seeing within the European Union. You, you might want to take a rather, I would want to take a different view on that. And on the question of wars between states, you and I, of course, would agree on this in broad terms. But we are talking a lot about the Thucydides trap a lot. And, you know, we're not talking about the Thucydides trap for no reason, as we know. And I wonder, again, that, 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 whether one's going to... You're a little bit too optimistic on, on, on those two grounds, Mary. States look pretty damn strong to me still. And uh, look, at, look at Trump and look at Brexit. That's a, that's a re- reassertion of statism, is it not? Britishness, whatever. And then secondly, on, but take on that first point, Mary. Just get, get oh, yeah, and but then I'll, open up for the Am I not allowed to answer all the points about oh, globalisation yeah, and you democracy? Say because I was you, very sh- short. You were. Uh, so on, on your first point, are states back? Well, of course people are reasserting states in response sure. to globalisation, but that doesn't mean states are back. On the contrary, states are disassembling, states are disintegrating. I mean, just walk through London and see all these homeless <laughs> people, see the absolute failure of our public services and ask yourself, is the state back? It's not. And what you're seeing in new wars is the disintegration of states. Uh, So that's number one. And, you know, while I believe in a liberal world order, I don't think it has to be based on states. That's my point. I think you need, if we're to save the new world order, and if you like save modernity in the sense of science and technology, then we need new kinds of institutions. We need layers of global governance and we need, and and I think we need um, much greater accountability and democracy at local levels. So that's what I would say to your answer, to your question about that. Let me just say a couple of things about globalization and about democracy. on um, globalization, I think it's important to realize that globalization isn't just a phenomenon that has overtaken us. It was con- it's a human construction. Uh, and it was constructed on the one hand by multinational companies and uh, people who wanted to increase the market. And on the other hand, I would say by civil society who actually were finding their ways blocked at national levels. And I think what you saw after the, in the 60s and 70s was a response both from the left and the right to the dominance and paternalism of the state. Mm. The left wanted more democracy, they wanted more human rights, mm. and what you saw after 68 were a whole set of new movements which have been extraordinarily successful in terms of increasing tolerance in our society, um, yeah. and all of these things. And on the right, you saw this push for more markets. And they came together in a way in the 1990s. I don't think it was just because everything had failed. I think there was a generation that had gone through this whole experience of pressing for human rights, 
pressing for civil society that came to the fore mm -hmm. in the 1990s. But what that generation, which is my generation, <laughs> failed to do was that we took social justice for granted. Mm -hmm. We thought we'd won those battles. But actually, if you, you know, I don't think it was inevitable that globalization would lead to more inequity. I think it was the failure to, to insist on yeah. it. Mm. Um, I think you look at the small Scandinavian countries, they've managed to combine globalization with social benefits very effectively. Uh, it was just a nice argument, you know, used to attack mm. the welfare state. Mm. So that's something on globalization. But the other point I think Richard, is absolutely yeah. key mm. is the issue of democracy. I think there's a real problem of what I would call substantive democracy, the ability to affect the decisions mm. that influence your life, because decisions, that's the Danny Roderick point, yeah. really. Decisions are no longer taken at the national level. <laughs> They're taken in the headquarters of multinationals or in financial markets. So how do we restore democracy? Mm. I don't think mm. we can mm. restore democracy without having institutions at a global level that can restrain these actors. But I also think we need to bring decision-making closer to the citizen. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I, recently I was visiting two leave constituencies, Mansfield and Pendle. Pen, um, the frustration in those places with Westminster is just as great yeah. as the frustration with Brussels. And so we need more sort of political... Yeah autonomy at local levels as well yeah. and we need a whole reordering of institutions and if that comes about then i'm sure modernity and the international liberal world order will have a new lease of life thanks mary thank you john uh, i think we've got plenty of hands going up where are the men where are the people with the mics we've only got the one just the one mic oh, the lsc is on austerity again <laughs> we'll, we'll, sorry about that i shouldn't say that yeah, yeah let's get it around yeah yeah Thanks very much, Professor. And a uh, quick uh, question for Professor Eikenberry of a conceptual nature. Thank you, John. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've, I've been, um, uh, you've been writing for quite some time the idea that the inside system became the outside system after the end of the Cold War. And what I took that you meant by that was that basically the liberal international order led by the United States became synonymous with world order itself, indeed with international society itself in the English school sense. But what you seem to be saying here today is that there might have been some states that are on the outside of that that use it as a reference point that may oppose it at times, but that ultimately there are some states that are in and some states that are out. So my question is if you can actually imagine a world in which you have a series of major powers that are promoting their own norms and their own conceptions of international order, indeed not just the United States but also Russia and China that do this as well, what distinguishes the liberal international order conceptually in your view from simply the promotion of American hegemony or the promotion of an American conception of norms in a zero-sum relationship okay, rivalry with other major powers? Grab the one mic and stick it in a hand. I don't care which hand. Down there, down there, down there, down there. Be great. I'll put you up. Yeah. Just give it, yeah, give it out. Give it out. We haven't got a lot of time. Thank you. Could you stand up to speak, please? Thanks. Uh, I'm asking basically the same question, but more briefly. Um, <laughs> Ooh, tough guy. <laughs> what is either democratic or liberal about the war on terror? Okay. What's, dem what? what's democratic or liberal about the war on terror? There's a question down here, please. Yeah, there you go, guy. Thanks. You want to take it to the front? And I'll take one more after that, please. Yeah. If you could stand up and say, and I'll take one over there. Yeah. If you want to stand up and say who you are. Yeah. Um, stand up. Okay. Yeah, it's good. Hi, Alexa Greenwald. Can hear you better. That's all. 
Um, so it seems that we were sort of um, there's been a lot of definitions of modernization that have been pointed out. One which is the proliferation of education and knowledge, but then there's also democracy, free market principles, liberal values, which I think get, um, as some other people have mentioned, conflated as Americanization. So I think uh, there's very much a uh, debate around what is modernization, particularly in these countries that are consider themselves outside the world order, and how do we, moving forward, define modernization as a way of or a system of movement? Uh, Professor Eikenberry, as you mentioned, which is um, up for countries themselves to determine, and not just a system of adopting American values. Okay, I'm going to take the gentleman over here in the corner. If you could stand up, just say who you are, if you could. Uh, my name is Thomas. Um, question about the institutions that you're referring to as being required in the next phase. One of the, the, the systems that we've created under the liberal order is that of international law and human rights and the international humanitarian law. And the institution of the ICC in particular, given that that's still in relative infancy, is the ICC going to survive this current transition? And could it be one of the institutions that sees us through into the next phase? Okay, I'll take, I'll take questions in reverse order. Mary, what, do you want to start, Mary? Maybe on the international law one, on the ICC. You've written about I, this. I'm going to do two things, okay. inside, outside, right. on the ICC. Because sure. I really like this inside, outside argument. But here I'm going to give a plug for my book, which is... Um, so here it is. Uh, on sale outside. 10% goes to LSE Ideas. So I'll tell you that now. Oh, really? Uh, no, okay. didn't you know that? Oh, yeah. uh, Sorry about that. So, you didn't read the contract. Okay. So I've written a book about the fact that we live in a world of competing security cultures. I don't want to explain it at length. Yeah. But geopolitics is the dominant security culture of the Cold War where there was a clear distinction between inside and outside. New wars, which I just told you about, is one where the outside comes inside. Mm, mm. Um, the war, what we see with the war on terror is that it's pushing the outside inside like new wars. Mm -hmm. But the liberal peace, which is, I guess, what John would associate with the international world order, is an attempt to push the inside outside. And I think we're in a conflict between all these different security mm. cultures, actually, at the moment. And to what extent... I do actually use the same inside-outside mm. point in the Good book. Um, but I think the extent to which, I mean, there are huge problems with the liberal peace, which is itself hugely contradictory because it was built on the assumption that peace was peace between nations rather than on the assumption of an international rights-based international law, uh, which is where I think we have to move to. And that's, an, in a rights-based international law, the difference between inside and outside Mm. disappears. During mm. the Cold War we thought um, peace was something, the Russians were in favour of peace between <laughs> nations mm. and we were in favour of human rights, i.e. pushing change inside nations mm. and we never sort of thought of the two as coming together mm. but actually they, they do and that's what a future liberal world order has to be and so absolutely something like the ICC would have to be key for this it would have to be key in upholding human rights, uh, in providing justice mechanisms so that those who infringe on human rights on a large scale mm. uh, are brought to account uh, and don't get away with impunity as they do now. The problem with the liberal peace at the moment is they let these guys 
get away with impunity. <laughs> Even in Bosnia, where the ICC did have some sway, you still have war criminals walking around free. Now, you know, the story of the ICC is probably a story of what's happening today. It's very much got sidelined, um, and it's got sidelined by geopolitics, by the view that peace somehow has to mean amnesty. Well, peace can't mean amnesty when in a human rights-based world because actually what that means is continuing to allow people to violate human rights which contributes to endless new wars so establishing the ICC you know I'm so glad we set it up I'm so glad it's there even though it's very uh, mm. powerless at the moment and we could mm. talk for a long time about what the problems are but mm. yes it's absolutely central to the kind of thing I was talking about just if I could just jump in on one issue, sorry, John, just quickly. As you know, I lived in Northern Ireland 22 years and finally survived uh, and had actually a rather extraordinarily wonderful time there. But on the question of amnesty and peace, I think there's a bit more of a problem there, Mary, than you're saying. Because in essence, the IRA were given an amnesty. You know, in essence, in essence, in essence. The fundamentals of the peace agreement finally signed with the IRA in 94, then in 96, and embodied in the Good Friday Agreement, something you mentioned, obviously, implicitly, about the consequence of Brexit on Ireland. And I agree with you entirely. It's very dangerous. Uh, that, that getting a peace actually involved basically a kind of an understanding there's an amnesty. The people who had done bad things, you know, and been convicted of, wouldn't, would affect... They didn't call it an amnesty, but that's what it added up to. So, you know... As a, great, as a man, who, as a person who was very much involved in pushing the Good Friday Agreement, I, you know, I think a lot of people, and on both sides, you know, you know, kind of swallowed hard. I would say two things. I yeah. would say in the long term that can't... I mean, well, at the moment, 20 years is good Northern for me. Ireland is yeah. pretty dysfunctional. Yeah. <laughs> it was worse when the war was going on, Mary, but I remind you that. But, you know, you know I, I look around and I think there are real problems that Spain, for example, didn't sure. go through no, 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 accountability. And um, I think also in contemporary wars, actually, what's happened is that you no longer get the IRA yeah. and the you know that you could and the DUP that you could somehow I mean somehow negotiate with yeah. now if you look at Syria I don't know yeah, how sure. many hundreds of armed groups there are I think sure. it was 170 at the last count are you really going to have a full-scale amnesty no. a full-scale amnesty no. for all those no, I, I, I only brought the Northern Ireland one because it's, it's an interesting yeah. counterexample John just yeah a couple of things first on the inside outside and conceptual issues I, I do think it's very important and as I've been over the years thinking about this, I've increasingly come to the view that we'll call it liberal order, which is something that's more generic than hegemonic or American order or global order. So liberal order as an open, rule-based, and, and progressively oriented uh, gathering of, of, of states and peoples um, uh, in the most general abstract sense, that that, that the, the sources of order of a liberal uh, type requires more than simply institutions to coordinate actions by independent states. That it, There's a social aspect to it, to social purpose, a identity, a, a shared identity uh, that gives foundation to that order and because you need that for, for people inside of those states to allow their governments to make commitments to each other, to have uh, in, in intense forms of, of, of global governance or regional governance to undergird your societies. So uh, it's a more demanding type of order, and that is easier to achieve when it has some kind of 
barriers where you're either inside or you're outside. If you're inside, you are a member. It's a club. Um, and to be inside is to have rights and privileges and protections. You share, there's a sense of we-ness with other liberal democracies inside of it. There's shared experience. You have interests, you have values, and you have mutual vulnerabilities that, uh, that allow for that order to be more complex and more of a, of a security community than simply a, a pragmatic, uh, utilitarian set of institutions so we can all do better, better, better things on our own. So, mm. so that deeper sense of community, more a club, that, that when the inside order became the outside order, that club character of liberal order was lost, and liberal order became less of a club and more like a set of public utilities that you could choose to subscribe to BT if you wanted to, or a different <laughs> utility. So, and that China could be in the, the WTO, but not again in the human rights regime. So countries could kind of opt in and opt out. It's a buffet. You can choose how much of liberal order you want to be in. And that leads you to the neoliberal platform, where liberal order is essentially a platform for, for banks and corporations to do deals. So the inside order, when it became the outside order, lost its club character. And that's the key thing about, about, about liberal order. It's, that, that, that states, unlike the realist view about international relations, liberals begin with liberal democracies. And there's a sense that they are uh, both unique uh, in the sense that they have values that are different than non-democracies, but they're also, in some sense, more vulnerable. Uh, their institutions, their re constitutional republican institutions, are more vulnerable to the war on terror, to geopolitics, to strong states that undermine rule of law. So, so liberal states, I'm, I'm sounding like Immanuel Kant here, need to create an international order to make those states safe. Woodrow Wilson, we want to create a world to make the world, we want to, we want to make the world safe for democracy. And so democracies, liberal democracies, are like eggs, and you need to build an egg carton so those eggs will stay intact. They're still separate eggs, but you work together to create that structure. And so in that sense, um, the liberal order isn't necessarily a global order. And uh, we thought it may have been one in the 90s, but, but I do think in a certain ironic way, it may be better for liberal order if there are states like China on the outside who are trying to pr propose a different kind of international order. Uh, more power to them uh, if there is a, a, a better way to make people safe, secure, and prosperous and all the rest. If there is a, a, a model of modernity that China can put forward, that, then we're back to the great contest. And I think that you, you, that, that's healthy in some sense. <laughs> uh, uh, multipolar visions of how to organize our lives. Um, I, just on, one other final thing about liberal order and, and war on terror. And, and, uh, one of the things that is important to, in these, these debates about the future of uh, the liberal order is to, to um, distinguish liberal character, character, characteristics of the international system from other kinds of characteristics. Liberal, liberal order, liberal internationalism, a set of ideas about organizing and uh, uh, liberal democracies uh, doesn't encompass everything that's out there or that's under the auspices of American hegemony. The U.S. engages in wars and does 
other sorts of things that you associate with traditional great power politics, that may not be liberal internationalism. That is to say, liberal internationalism emerged in the modern world alongside nationalism, capitalism, empire, a great power politics, hegemony. In other words, it it is one of a, of a bundle of different grand forces and organizing ideas that it, to be sure, has affiliated with. Liberalism tied itself to empire in the 19th century, and Britain all the way into the post-World War II period. Uh, let's have the British Empire, but let's have it inside of the League of Nations. So there's, so there's a kind of partnerships, alliances, alignments between different forces. Liberal internationalism has allied itself with American hegemony, but it's not the the same thing. And you can imagine a world, a liberal international world, in a post-hegemonic system where it's not American power that is underwriting liberal order, but it's it's something else. Maybe marries a more diffuse international society. So uh, I think one of the ways to, to make progress in the debate is to distinguish (coughs) what we might think are the liberal characteristics of a world that we would like to see with all these other forces, some dark, some light, some helpful, some destructive, that may be in the mix at the same time. Uh, Mary, you've got one final point you'd like to make, and then we're going to call it to an end. Yeah, I was going to ask you a question, but then you (coughs) answered it, which is, you know, you seem to imply that the liberal international order needs another in order to survive, and you imply that by the security community. And I, I for one, am not nostalgic about the Cold War. I, I felt it was a terrible time, and I felt it was those people in Eastern Europe uh, who were oppressed by the Soviet Union that suffered most, because we provided them with another. Yeah. And so, you know, this is, you know, at its extreme, it's a Schmittian idea, <laughs> that what underpins sovereignty is the friend-enemy distinction. Um, And uh, I think it's really alarming. And I think until we can get away from the notion that we need another, we're never going to be able to resolve the problems of the liberal world order. I mean, it may be that the competition is no longer state-based, that there are different political currents that are all global. Mm. That might be. I mean, I'm not saying we're going to eliminate, but it's so complex. I mean, I, one of the, I'm about to go to China this evening, and one of the things that I found very striking in doing a little bit of background research is the degree to which China is now um, funding peacekeeping mm-hmm. and helping to uphold the African peace and security architecture. Exactly. So what is left of the liberal peace seems to now be funded by China, which is quite kind of Ironic. paradoxical. <laughs> and um, yeah. so I just think we need, you know, those of us who are, you know, and I do think, and this is, maybe this sounds a bit elitist, but somehow the effect of communications technology, the fact that so many people in advanced countries go to universities mean that we ought to be able to base our world order on deliberation and rationality and not on fear of the other. And that's the only way I think that we can survive. Thank you very much, Mary. Thank you very much. Before I move a formal thank you for announcement, I just want to make an announcement. There was another crisis of the liberal world order, for those of us who remember it. John, you're far too young. Uh, In the 1960s, I remember. And uh, the LSE was uh, rather an important part of that uh, revolt of the 1960s, as we're discovering. We held a session yesterday, and there'll be a round table on the same on Monday evening. For those of you who like exhibitions, which I do, 
go down to the atrium, which is the student, and there's a very interesting exhibition of the great challenge to the liberal or, or to liberalism in the 1960s mounted by that student radical uh, revolt. So please go along to that. And there's a big round table on the, on the, on the Monday evening. Some of you old leftists might want to come along. Some of you old conservatives might want to come along. Come along a boo, shout, or say what you like. It's a very big table. But to talk about what actually happened in the 1960s, because many of us, in one way or another, for good or ill, were rather formed by that particular decade. Perhaps I'm more nostalgic for the 60s than I am for the Cold War, Mary. I don't know. Uh, I'm certainly not nostalgic <laughs> for the Cold War. I just want to say thank you very much, John. Thank you very much, Mary, for stimulating a great debate and a great discussion. Could you put your hands together and say thank you very much? <laughs>